match. And then after that, they just, I mean, went, I, they went crazy. I mean, they just started nailing everything. It was unbelievable how well they did. And uh, they, we had uh, a number of them that would quiz out uh, uh, just every, every time. It was, it was really amazing how well they did. Their confidence shot up, and next thing you know, they were doing great. Well, anyway, we're going to turn to Isaiah today. Isaiah chapter 60, we're going to look at verses 1 through 3 and make a couple of, uh, I guess, uh, observations and, and note just a couple of things from the passage. The book of Isaiah chapter 60, kind of right in the middle of your Bible if you're looking for it. Isaiah chapter 60. Sometimes, you know, you hear the word competition and you're thinking, you're assuming it's all about just, uh, you know, the glit and the glamour of singing and all that, but not, not these, this contest. I mean, they have a number of uh, things. They have preaching. They have, uh, so they, they have to prepare those things. They have teaching. Uh, We've got leading singing and, uh, you know, the choir, of course, and uh, preaching, just all types of different things that are ministry-related. And uh, they do a great job of not making it such a big deal, like as far as, you know, they don't get into all of it. I mean, I know some of the teenagers are big into some of that stuff. You know, their pride gets it going and all. But the truth is, is that from what I can tell down there, they handle it in a very, very positive manner. And the goal is more performing than it is trying to, uh, trying to excel. If you know what I mean? Trying to be the top. It's not so much that way. The, the, the youth directors do a great job of tempering the kids and helping them to understand that it's the... Uh, uh, just the opportunity to serve that is the uh, real blessing. So they do a good job there. Isaiah chapter 60, verse 1 through 3. The Bible says, Arise, shine. No, you stay seated. That's fine. The Bible says, Arise, shine, for thy light is come, and the glory of the Lord is risen upon thee. For behold, the darkness shall cover the earth, and gross darkness the people. But the Lord shall arise upon thee, and his glory shall be seen upon thee. And the Gentiles shall come to thy light and kings to the brightness of thy rising. Uh, the passage, obviously, is very prophetical, and it directly relates to Israel and the millennium. And the Messiah, or Christ, will have come, and he will have established his kingdom, and he'll be ruling and reigning on the throne of David at this point. Now, that's a long-awaited day in the lives of an Israelite. Uh, they have been looking and searching for the Messiah for a number of years. And uh, when he came the first time, they had thought that he would establish that kingdom. But instead of establishing the kingdom, we know that they rejected the Lord Jesus Christ. And finally, he is one of the ones that was rejected. He's hung on a cross. He's crucified. He rises the third day and he begins to ultimately incorporate the Gentile into salvation, which we're very glad for. But the first advent did not produce what Israel had thought. They had expected this prophecy to be fulfilled. The fact was that Christ ultimately would shed his blood on behalf of all of us, and we certainly are grateful for that. But the Israelite one day will experience this prophecy firsthand. Christ is the light that will come. And His glory will revive a fallen people. And it will even restore their nation to the promised place of preeminence that they are being promised here even in this passage. Now, every eye is going to focus or every eye is going to be on Israel 
as they're elevated before the world once again. Even as they were in the day of Solomon, when all the nations of the world looked to them as the great nation, the leader of all nations, so this day will come as well. Now, why will every eye be on them? Why will the attention of the world be upon Israel? Because they're going to be reflecting the light of the Lord. And that light's going to stand out in the midst of a very dark and perverse world that it will be. And again, he goes on to say that the world will be prevailing, uh, be a prevailing darkness. And that even, he goes on to say even more so that gross darkness will have encompassed the people. They'll be in gross darkness. And so, again, in the midst of all that darkness will come this light. It'll be Israel that's reflecting the light and the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. And as a result, they'll be magnified and exalted in the eyes of the world at that point. Now, again, this passage is being written about Israel. It's a prophetical passage, and it doesn't directly apply to us. If you would read that and say that that has to do with you, then you would be prophetically wrong, doctrinally wrong. It does deal with Israel. It doesn't deal with us. However, there's no doubt that the very uh, uh, portion of Scripture that we're reading has a very important principle or application to you and I tonight. Again, although it's written to God's people, Israel, it does speak uh, to us today practically. And today that's what I want to do. I want to take this passage and I want to try to apply it to you and I today and see what we can learn from the passage. So tonight we're going to just take a few moments and note just three thoughts from the passage. And uh, hopefully before we're done we'll be encouraged by it. So let's pray. Father, again, we thank you for this time together. We're grateful for the goodness and the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you for just allowing us to be a part of your family and giving to us an eternal home. And, Father, allowing us to spend an eternity in a place called heaven. And, Lord, we're so thankful. Now, God of heaven, may you be magnified and exalted tonight. Lord, may you be uh, just, may, may we get a glimpse of you tonight. Lord, it'll do us no good to leave here hearing just a man. We need you, Father the Master, to truly speak to our heart and drive home the truths that we'll learn. Father, help us, Lord, to see the need to just arise. God, we need you. And Father, we can't do it without you. Fill me with your spirit now. Let me be your mouthpiece and bless every listening ear. And may we, Father, truly receive what you'd have for us. Well, thank you in Christ's name. Amen. I want to note three things from the passage tonight. Again, we'll hurry because of time, but number one, the command to shine. In verse one of our passage, you'll notice here it says, Arise, shine. For thy light is come, and the glory of the Lord is risen upon thee. Again, arise, shine, he says. We see the command to shine. You know, the child of God is one who has come face to face with the light of the world. You realize that? Over in the book of John, chapter 8, verse 12, the Bible says, Then spake Jesus again unto them, saying, I am the light of the world. He that followeth me shall not walk in darkness, but shall have the light of life. He said, I'm the light of the world. You say, well, I've been saved by Jesus Christ. Then you had to have met Him. And if you met Him, then you come face to face with the light of the world. Not only have we come face to face, but we are to reflect the light of our Lord Jesus Christ on behalf of others. 
Take your Bible, look over the book of Matthew chapter 5 again, verse 14 through 16. We see an admonition of our Lord and a command even. He says over here in chapter 5, the book of Matthew, beginning in verse 14, He says, Ye are the light of the world. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hid, neither do men light a candle and put it under a bushel, but on a candlestick, and it giveth light unto all that are in the house. Let your light so shine before men, that they may see your good works, and glorify your Father which is in heaven. We're told to arise and shine. We've met the Master face to face. We've in, 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 in been enlightened by Him. And we, we now have that light that's to be illuminating in and through us. We're to reflect the light of Jesus Christ before a world that's in gross darkness. Not only arise and shine, but He's basically saying be very visible. Be visible. We sing a little song that says, This little light of mine, I'm going to let it shine. This little light of mine, I'm going to let it shine, let it shine, let it shine, let it shine. Then we sing, hide it under a bushel. No, I'm going to let it shine. Hide it under a bushel. No, I'm going to let it shine, let it shine, let it shine, let it shine. Do you know that God's not impressed with undercover Christians? He's not impressed by that at all. Today's church culture is plagued with seeker-sensitive churches today. You say, what in the world's that? Well, a seeker-sensitive church, their emphasis is on creating a non-threatening environment that would appeal to those seeking the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, first of all, I'm not really aware of a lot of people that are seeking the Lord. But the fact is, is that, is that they try to create an environment that's non-threatening. And they do that in order, in order to accomplish the goal, they try to make the church look more attractive to unbelievers. And that means that they incorporate familiar music, uh, performances, and even present pop psychology, so to speak, to those in the world so that they receive what they're used to hearing and what they're used to getting. They don't want them to feel uncomfortable, out of place, Sadly, they would resent someone telling them that their service was churchy. That seemed like church to me. Really. Because, see, that's the last thing they really want. First of all, may I just say this? God intended the church to be a place for the saved. Now, I know that goes against, because we do. We, listen, I'm not opposed to trying to bring our friends and family in to hear the gospel, but the goal, really, of the church is not to somehow cater to the lost. It's to feed the saved. The requirements to be a member of a church, at least a biblical New Testament church, includes being born again and baptized. So the real clientele or the ones that we should be focusing our attention on are the members. The church is not simply a social club and it's not a lodge that we join. It's a living body that requires living parts and pieces. That means it has to be those that are in the family of God that are children of God. 
And God never instructs the church to appeal to sinners, but to reach out to them. See, the church is for the saved and not the lost. Therefore, we're not to conform to the world. And although we should do our best to to obviously make lost guests feel accepted and loved when they arrive, we're not to employ measures during our services to make them leave the same. I feel like a lot of this is going over some people's heads. (laughs) There should be a very sharp contrast noted by them in regards to the music they hear in the house of God and the music that they hear on their own CD players and MP3 players at work, at home, at school, and so forth. There should be a powerful feeling of conviction that invades their soul from the Holy Ghost and the Word of God being preached. There should be a sense of the all of Christ or the the awe of Christ and for the need of further evaluation in their life or maybe even change. They shouldn't leave feeling as though they've attended a concert or some program at their local theater. Instead, they, they should be deeply moved within by an unknown force from above. See, we're not to be seeker sensitive in our outreach, but spirit sensitive. We need to go out and we need to stand and we need to be seen. We need to arise and shine. We ought to be different than the world. We ought to be peculiar. We ought to be just totally and completely in another area of existence, so to speak. I mean, our thoughts shouldn't be their thoughts. Our walk shouldn't be their walk. Our attitude should be different. Our outlook should be different. We should have a Bible or a biblical worldview, not just a worldview. I'm telling you, can I just say this? I hope that you don't vote based on the economy this November. Are you kidding me? Do you know who put the president in office? I believe it was Christians. Now listen to me. I don't think we've got a whole lot of great choices out there. Don't misunderstand me. And I'm not talking Democrat, Republican. I'm telling you that you better vote your conscience and not your wallet. You're going to answer to God for who you put in office when you stand before Him one day. Well, he just seems like he'd be the best for my for the economy. He'd be the best. I don't care if he's Republican. I don't care if he's independent. I don't care if he's Democrat. Listen to me. I want somebody in there with a little bit of moral integrity. And I know it's hard to find in politics, but it doesn't excuse my vote. I can't just say, well, what's the worst of two evils? What are you talking about? I want the closest thing to a biblical leader that I can find. I don't care what the economy's like. God's in control of it. He decides whether I do well or I don't. He's the one that puts food on my table and clothes on my back and a roof over my head. Not the President. Not the Congress. I'm a little bit perturbed with Christians who vote based on the economy or social issues. We better be voting on biblical issues. In Isaiah 58, 1, the Bible says, Cry aloud, spare not, lift up thy voice like a trumpet, and show my people their transgression and the house of Jacob their sins. First of all, we note the command to shine. Number two, we see the condition of man himself. Over here in verse 2, we go back, of course, to Isaiah chapter 60. 
And we begin reading there in verse 2. It says, For behold, the darkness shall cover the earth, and gross darkness the people. Well, I don't think there's a whole lot of debate on whether or not that's the case anymore. I think we're all pretty clear on that, and we'd all agree on that, that we live in a very dark and wicked and sinful culture and society. And the people seem to be in gross darkness. If you put a buzzard in a pen that's six feet by eight feet and it's entirely open at the top, the bird, in spite of its ability to fly, will be an absolute prisoner. See, the reason is that a buzzard always begins a flight from the ground with a run of about 10 or 12 feet. Without space to run, as its, in, as its habit is, it will not, not even attempt to fly. But it will remain a prisoner for life in a very small jail with no top. You know, the ordinary bat that flies around at night is a remarkably nimble creature in the air but that it cannot take off from a level place. can't take off from a level place. If it's placed on the floor or flat ground, all it can do is shuffle about helplessly and I would imagine painfully until it finally reaches some slight elevation from which it can finally throw itself into the air. Then it, all at once, I mean, just like that, it'll take off. A bumblebee. If, if you dropped a bumblebee into an open tumbler, It'll be there until it dies. Unless, it, unless it's taken out by you. Because, see, it never sees the means of escape at the top. But it persists in trying to find some way out through the sides or near the bottom. It'll seek a way where none really exists until it's completely wore out and it'll destroy itself. You know, people are very similar, aren't they? In many ways, uh, we're like the buzzard, the bat, and the bumblebee. We struggle about with all of our problems and our frustrations, and we never realize that all we have to do is look up. Amen. You know what? That's the answer of escape. It always is, and it's always the solution to every problem in life. Look up. The world is meandering about in darkness. They are stumbling around, sin sick. And the answer is always the same, look up. They're searching for an escape. But they never find it. While all along they need only look up. And it's so imperative and it's so important that we as believers that are commanded to shine... Take them by the hand or by the chin and point them upward. Sadly enough, men and women will die and burst hell wide open because you and I will not shine. Bound in our selfishness, our pride and our arrogance, we will keep our mouths shut and never once tell a world that's dying and decaying and rotting in hell itself that they need only look up. Again, our passage points out that darkness shall cover the earth. Well, I think it's doing a pretty good job of it. 
In Romans chapter 8, verse 22, we read, For we know that the whole creation groaneth and travaileth in pain together until now. I mean, when Adam sinned, it wasn't just mankind that lost his place with God. The very creation itself suffered that day. Every, every single tornado and tsunami and earthquake that we experience is a direct result of sin. The world itself groans, the Bible says. But he says also that gross darkness shall cover the people. In Romans 8.23 it goes on to say, And not only they, but ourselves also, which have the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves, waiting for the adoption to wit the redemption of our body. He's saying even though we're saved, this world is so corrupted and so sinful and so wicked, even we are just waiting and begging God to return so that we can eradicate this flesh once and for all. 2 Corinthians 4, 4, he says, In whom the God of this world had blinded the minds of them which believe not. We're fortunate that we saw the light. That at some point, some... Man or woman of God, some saint of old, some preacher or some teacher, some loved one or friend pointed us upward. We saw the light, the glorious light of Jesus Christ. We accepted and received Him. For we were bound by a devil, a demon, bound by the God of this world, blinding our minds to the truth even as every single person and soul is blinded today without Christ. They need you. They need me. Finally, number three, not only we note the command to shine and the condition of man, but within we see the countenance of the converted. <laughs> the countenance of the converted. In verses 2, a and 3, it says, excuse me, it says, But the Lord shall arise upon thee, and His glory shall be seen upon thee. And the Gentiles shall come to thy light, and kings to the brightness of thy rising. Again, we understand that this is sit, sitting right at smack dab in the millennial reign. We understand that. But what a tremendous truth or application for you and I today. We who have experienced Christ face to face, been introduced to Him and His tremendous light, how He has filled us with His glory, the Lord Jesus Christ. His light rules in our heart, or should rule and reign in our heart. And that light ought to be seen by those that are in gross darkness, bound by sin. See, like Israel in the millennium, who will shine because of the glory of the Lord. The glory of the Lord being reflected upon them. So His glory within us lights us up. And we are able to attract others to us because of that light. Now, if there's no light, if it's only our flesh that they see and hear and experience, then there'll be no attraction Sadly enough, we so often walk in the flesh, do we not? We're so void of the presence of Christ, we know nothing of a real 
communion and fellowship with the Lord. We simply go through the motions in our Bible reading and our prayer. And by the way, Bible reading and prayer is not communion with the Lord. Anyone can read a Bible. Anybody can pray. There has to be an acknowledgement of His presence. And a continual search and a, 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 a thirst for Jesus Christ and His reality in our life. Is it any wonder that the world goes to hell and most Christians could care less? Is it because possibly we do not truly or have not truly embraced Him, our Savior and Lord, as we ought to have? Jesus Christ and His work of grace in our lives will ultimately enable the light of Christ to shine through us. I don't care how wicked and how dark the world gets. A sincere, genuine believer in Jesus Christ that reflects the presence and the power of the Holy Ghost will always be an attractive force in this world. You say, well, how can that be? Well, because the Bible tells us in Philippians 1.6, being confident of this very thing, that he which hath begun a good work in you will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. You are not who you were. And if you are still living and acting as you used to, you are wrong. The Holy Spirit of God produces a spirit of joy in our life. That is attractive to people, isn't it? I mean, how many, how many times have you been around somebody, and probably not that many, that is truly filled with joy? It just seems like you just enjoy being in their presence. They're a, a refreshing, uh, I guess a breath of fresh air in this cynical, critical world we live in. Galatians 5, and 23 says, But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, Peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, temperance. Against such, there is no law. The psalmist says in Psalm 40, verses 1 through 3, To the chief musician, a psalm of David, I waited patiently for the Lord, and He inclined unto me and heard my cry. He brought me up also out of an horrible pit, out of the miry clay, and set my feet upon a rock and established my goings. Now hold on. That's salvation. There we are now on a solid rock. We're no longer sinking in the sand of this world. We're no longer bound by the muck and the mire of this wicked, sinful world. We are placed on a solid rock. And that's not where it ends, though, thank God. He continues by saying, And hath put a new song in my mouth, even praise unto our God. This is the part I really like. Many shall see it and fear and shall trust in the Lord. Doesn't it bother you when many don't see it? And many don't trust in the Lord? What's wrong with our lives that this verse seems to be as tinkling brass. Have you ever listened to somebody talk that's just had a tracheotomy? They can't. 
All you hear is the air. Now, I'm, not, I'm not making fun of them. I'm telling you, if you've ever heard that, and it sounds a lot worse than that, but all you hear is the air, and you sometimes can think you hear a word, but all you're hearing is the air because it's not really going across the vocal cords. Can I tell you that that's how most Christians' lives sound to the world today? All they hear is a bunch of hot air. Is it any wonder that we can't get the message of Christ across to people? The sound is not clear enough because the life is not pure enough. We're no longer the same since receiving the Lord in our lives. Our joy odometer should be pegging daily. We ought to be happy. There ought to be joy in our life. And sure, we're going to face some difficult times. We may even struggle with life from time to time. But the common demeanor or attitude or outlook in the saint of God's life ought to be that of joy. Not that he won't bear burdens and she won't bear burdens, but that they will see Christ in the midst of those burdens and look back on that day when they accepted and received Him as Savior and say to themselves, I have every reason to rejoice I'm not going to spend one moment in hell. Our thoughts ought to always go back to that day of our salvation and point to the omnipotent Savior that we received and accepted. Because if He is all-powerful, as He claims to be, as He has preached to be, as we claim we believe Him to be, then there is nothing that He cannot overcome in our lives. And there's nothing that we can't overcome with His help. That's a reason to be joy-filled. Produces a spirit of joy, but it also provides an attitude of servitude. The countenance of the converted will, ref- be, will reflect an attitude of gratitude, or servitude, I should say, which, in my opinion, gratitude becomes the greatest attribute. Because without gratitude, there is no servitude. See, gratitude will move you to action. It will move you to action on behalf of the one that you are grateful for, or the thing you are grateful for. And we're to possess that attitude of gratitude for Christ. And His saving and sanctifying work in our life ought to be a reason why we're grateful. And there shouldn't be anything that we wouldn't do for Him. You know, when a person hesitates to give themselves or even their finances to God, it's often a result of missing gratitude. Now, we like to cover it up with all kinds of excuses, but let's just get down to the brass tacks. If you really are grateful for everything God's doing, to the point, I mean really grateful, you know how the kind of grateful we wish our kids were for everything we do as parents for them? If we were, they were really grateful for what we've done for them, they'd clean their room. If they're really grateful for what we've done, they would show me respect. If they were really grateful for what I've done and my wife and what we've given to them and shared with them and, and, and enabled them to have, in their, they would obey us. They're just not grateful like they ought to be. But when it comes to us and God, we say, well, there's a lot of other reasons. It's not that. Well, I'm convinced it is. 
father and a mother who attended a little church faithfully had lost their son in a battle uh, in, in, in the war some years earlier. And there came a day when the pastor, uh, um, they came to their pastor and they, they told him that they wanted to give a monetary gift as a memorial to their son who had given his life for his country. Well, the pastor, of course, expressed his, his gratitude and appreciation and he told them that what they were doing was just a wonderful gesture. He asked if he, it would be all right if he could tell the congregation, you know, the decision they had made and what they had done. And they consented. And so the next Sunday he told the congregation of the gift and how they had given it in memory of their fallen son. On the way home from church that afternoon, there was another couple who had attended the church. And they were driving down the highway when the father looked over at his wife and said, Why don't we give a gift because of our son? His wife said, but our son didn't die in any conflict. Our son's still alive. And the husband said, well, that's exactly my point. That's all the more reason we ought to give in thanks to God. See, we have so much to be thankful for. But so often it escapes us. Sometimes it's not till we lose it that we finally realize how much we have. And God isn't asking us to give our life today, but to live it on behalf of Him. One day Israel's going to shine as the Lord Jesus Christ rules and reigns on the throne of David. The eyes of the world are going to look upon them as they reflect His glory. And we are privileged as believers, to experience the glory of God now. We don't need to wait till the millennium, and we are commanded even to shine even now before a people that are in gross darkness. May we arise and shine today. May we gladly and gratefully accept our place as a beacon of light amidst those crashing into the rocks of sin. Will you arise and shine today? Will you permit Christ to be seen in your life and then gladly share Him with others? The preacher was speaking at an open-air crusade in Halifax, Nova Scotia. Billy Graham was the, supposed to speak the next night, and he arrived a day early, actually, and he came incognito. And he sat in the back on the grass near the rear of the crowd. He, he was not recognized because he was wearing a hat and dark glasses. Directly in front of him sat a very elderly gentleman who seemed to be listening intently to the presentation of the preacher. When the invitation came and the, it, they, the folks were asked to come forward uh, as an open sign of commitment, Billy Graham decided to do a little personal evangelism. He tapped the man on the shoulder and he asked, Would you like to accept Christ? I'd be glad to walk down with you if you'd want me to. The old man looked up and down, thought it over for a moment, and then said, Nah, I think I'll just wait till the big guns come tomorrow night. Now I'll just wait till the big gun comes tomorrow night. Unfortunately, it underlies how in the minds of many people, evangelism is the task of the big guns not the little shots. 
even more disturbing is that many believers feel the same way. Somehow believe that it's the preacher's job or some paid staff member's responsibility and there could be nothing farther from the truth. Let me encourage you, people of God, to arise and shine. Let God use you today as a light in a world in gross darkness. Father, we come to you. We thank you for the salvation that's ours. We thank you, Father, for the opportunity to be a witness on your behalf. Lord, we feel so unworthy, and yet you give us the great privilege of being a part of that process. We know that some plant, some water, but you give the increase. Father, help us as we as a church enter into the spring and as we move forward in our team soul winning and as we consider our ten club and, Lord, as we want to focus and direct our attention to the most important aspect of the Christian life and that's being a witness, a testimony, a light in darkness, leading others to Christ. May we, Father, recognize our responsibility as those that are to shine. Help us, Father, not to take our life and somehow disconnect it from the responsibilities of the believer. May we not somehow say that that's for someone else. Lord, may we receive those truths and that reality and exercise our responsibility to shine in a dark world. We'll thank you in Christ's name. Amen. Let's all stand to our feet. Every head bowed as the pianist plays. We'll not belabor. We'll not take much more time. We're going to move quickly. If the Lord speaks to your heart, you come. Arise and shine. It may be as simple as passing out a track, inviting someone to church, sharing with someone that Christ is the answer, pointing them upward, lifting their head and saying, Look up, your redemption draweth nigh. Jesus Christ is the truth, the way the life. No one ever got saved in darkness. Because you can't be saved unless Christ is there. And He's the light. We've got to get them to the light. And often they need to see it in us first. They'll be attracted to that light just like a lightning bug is. Just like any other fly, a bug outside at night. When it sees that light, it's attracted to it. I'll tell you something. The world's looking for something unique and different. Something genuine and sincere. And the truth is, we can't save them. Only He can. So when they do finally show up, and they are interested and they are attracted, we lift them up to Him. Look up. I'm grateful for every visit that's made at Community Baptist Temple. 
But there is no visit that pleases God any more than one that opens up a Bible and shows someone how to be saved. Or one that at least someone's going out with the intention to do so. Whether it's door to door or even a visitor visit. The visit that pleases God the most is the one when the person visiting says, I'm going to do everything I can to win anybody that's lost where I'm going. Not just simply invite them to church. Not just simply let them know we miss them. But I'm going to make sure there's nobody that's lost when I leave. If they truly want to hear it, I'll share it. Well, thank you once again. We're going to close in a word of prayer. Mr. Jurgen's going to pray, and we're going to dismiss. Again, thank you for coming tonight, and we pray that uh, the Lord will continue to bless you throughout this week. Again, Saturday morning, 930, we'll be back on with the Go Rally. There are a number of teens and folks that may not be here, but there'll be a number of people that are. So make sure you plan on being a part of it, and, and we'll certainly look forward to uh, the Lord blessing again Saturday. And then we'll see you Sunday, Lord willing. Oh, God, our Father, we thank you, Lord, once again. We have heard from your throne, Lord. My heart's been stirred, Lord, and 